All right, thank you. You can be seated. I, I want to assure you this morning that as I'm up here, you're going to see a full laptop right here. Um, don't don't worry, I'm not checking emails or uh, thing, anything like that. Basically, our printer would not print this morning for some reason. Uh, technology has failed us once again. Um, there, more than likely, some kind of update happened and, you know, all the stars have to align. So, um, I've got it right here on my computer. So this will be a little awkward for me, um, but I'm going to try to do the best I can scrolling through it. And what's really great is this. I didn't charge it very well. Uh, Last night, I didn't put it on the charger because I thought, oh, I just need enough energy this morning to print my sermon off. And uh, that's about all I'll need this computer for. And uh, lo and behold, it never printed. So uh, you might get a shorter message uh, today. And that'll break your heart. I get it. (laughs) I guess you could always plug it in, right? I guess you could do that. Well, here's what we're talking about today. We are continuing on with our series of um, family by the book, looking at the scriptures, looking at the word of God to guide our families. Uh, we've been in this series for a while, and uh, we still have several more messages. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one today. I think this will be profitable um, for, for from husband to wife, to wife to husband, from children to parents, from... I mean, this message applies generally. Um, it even applies if you're no longer a child but an adult, and you're no longer as an adult in that position of obeying your parents but honoring your parents. It even goes for parents with older children. What does that look like? Uh, like, what is godly biblical communication? Now, today when we look at this, we're taking it from a topical perspective, so I can also tell you that uh, not only in the family but also the family of God, this is how we we're going to talk about communication, even how we communicate to each other. So uh, this message is meant to fit into this series, but it applies across all spectrums. You can use this even in your job situation. You can use this with when your in-laws become outlaws. I mean, you can use this just about anywhere. So I'm excited to talk to you about this. The title of this message, if you're looking for a title, it's very creative. It's called Biblical-Minded Communication. How creative is that? I was trying to think to myself, ooh, I got this really cool title, this really great hook. And then I just gave up and just said, biblical communication. So that's what it is, biblically minded communication. When we communicate, we should keep the Bible in mind. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof. For instruction in righteousness. The Bible helps us to know what's right, how to get right, how to stay right. Okay? It 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 helps us. So I would say this, even the way we communicate, we need to think in line of is am I communicating biblically? In the way am I even thinking biblically? Now, if you were to take a survey of our culture, here's how people communicate for the most part. Pure emotion. That's what we're taught. That's what we're cultured. The the way we communicate is pure emotion. That's how we actually should. Now, I will tell you, nothing wrong with emotion in the sense of God has given it. But emotion does not drive our decisions in life. And emotion is not the true indicator of what truth is. His word is. By the way, I think I made a mistake this morning. I put this vest on, but it is massively hot now. So are you all okay with me taking this off? 
Okay, because otherwise you're going to see massive pit stains coming out here in just a little bit. So this baby is really heating up. Which reminds me of a story. Y'all like stories, don't you? Uh, (laughs) I am not making this up, okay? And please do not Google this during this time because I cannot promise you what would happen. But I get these emails through the week of church emails, what churches are doing around the nation and what some churches are doing in California if you, know, if you follow the news, California is, is a little bit of a different state from other states. We all knew that, right? So basically in, uh, in this one, I think it was Orange County was this church, that uh, the church wasn't allowed to meet, but yet the strip clubs were allowed to meet. Okay? Go figure. So the church changed the designation of a church to a strip club. Now, they didn't do any actual stripping. The, pastors ba- the pastor basically got up there and took off his overcoat and took off his tie and said, well, we stripped this morning. And then he just kept preaching so they would fit into the technicalities of... Um, but don't worry, that wasn't my motivation because Tennessee is a totally different state than California. If you haven't... You know, actually, people from California are trying to move here, okay? Uh, so uh, I thought you would uh, get a kick out of that. Um, please don't try to <laughs> Google that. I, I'm not promised you it would come up if you... Tried to find the stripping church, okay? So don't do that. It was a link that came in an email. Um, So I guess churches are getting creative in California uh, in what they do. But that's not anything about this message. Now you have a piece of useless information to kind of take you along here today. Uh, Aren't you glad you live in Tennessee? Where you don't have to call, you don't have to change weird names on your church. We can just stick with Carville Bible Church and and be okay with it. So... When we look today at this message, at this message about communication, it fits right in with uh, the whole family series, but it can be used all of life. Biblically-minded communication. So here's some points. If you're a person who likes points, this is a very point-oriented sermon. We're going to be looking around at some scriptures. James chapter 4, we'll start off in James chapter 4. And here's the first idea when it comes to the idea of biblically-minded communication. This is good for everything, from Children to parents, parents to children, husband to wife, wife to husband, uh, to in-laws, to family. I mean, everywhere in the church of God. Principle number one, communicate with with internal awareness. Communicate. I'll explain what what I mean by this. Biblically minded communication, you communicate with internal awareness. And I put in parentheses. That you are a sinner. Communicate with an internal awareness that you're a sinner. That may seem simple and so reductionistic. I don't think we do that very often. We don't communicate with the idea of wait a minute, I am a sinner. I am, what I am saying right now could be radiating from a heart that is loving self more than loving God at the moment, that is loving self more than loving others. Sometimes we don't have that perspective as we communicate. We just communicate whatever is kind of coming up at the surface and figure, well, I've just got to let it out. That's not actually a biblical way to communicate. When we communicate, we must always communicate with internal awareness that we're sinners, that what we're saying could have bad motivations, that we have to check our heart before the Lord. We have to make sure that when we communicate, we're communicating for the glory of God because we love God and for the good of the other person. In all honesty, a lot of times our communication is not about the glory of God and the good of the other person. It's typically about the good of us. 
I like James chapter 4 and verse 1 through 3. Um, wish we could look a little bit more of James 4. Um, but James chapter 4 and verse 1 through 3. Let me read for you something very interesting. James chapter 4 that, that helps us understand and know this principle. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now the average wife would go, well, my husband, that's the problem. Okay. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That word passions, hedon, is the Greek word, hedon, hedon. Does that sound familiar like any kind of common word, hedon, hedonism? You ever heard the word hedonism? What is hedonism? Hedonism is this, life is lived for your pleasure. And like you do everything you can to just get your own pleasure. Life is about you. That's hedonism. It's like, get everything out of my way. It's just about my own pleasure. So what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? This word passions is this, it's not a good thing here. It's hedon. It's this sinful passions. It's all about you. It's what you want. What causes conflicts, especially in our communication, is a lot of times we communicate, it's out of our own passions. We just want what we want in that moment. It's really about us, not the glory of God and the good of the other person. It's our good. Notice he says this. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. He's just saying, he's kind of pointing out that this desiring you have is for your own passions. So you so much want what you want that you're willing even to murder to get it. You covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Like He's just denoting the selfish, self-centeredness of passions. You do not have because you do not ask. But if you ask, you do not receive because you ask it wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what causes fights and quarrels? He says it's your passions. It's that selfish drive, that hedonism on the inside, that sinfulness, that Total depravity, you're totally depraved, means there's no part of your life that the curse of the fall hasn't touched. So when you communicate, we must communicate with an internal awareness that we are a sinner. That when we communicate sometimes, and this is what we discover. You could be riding along, everything's going great, and then, you ever been in that situation? It's you and your spouse, you're driving along, and it was a great day. The birds were chirping, the follies were falling, and, and it just looked like it was going to be a great day. And like one thing was said, and all of a sudden, you, like five minutes later, you're wondering, like, how did we get here? Like, how did, how did this happen? I mean, we just ate. We're not hangry, okay? So like, what just happened to us? Passions. It's all about us, not the glory of God and the other person. We're not realizing that we're sinners. We're not realizing that our communication, many times, uh, the quarrels and fights that our communication Spawns is because we're communicating in a passions, a hedonism type of way. Our biggest problem is not that we now are going to have a democratic president. It's not racism. It's not the sexual revolution. Although those are all products, um, you know, well, let's stay off the political, but everything that we're seeing is usually a result of sin. Our, our biggest problem is sin. That's our biggest problem, right? That's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is us. There's one part of the Bible that I disagree with. One part. I think the whole thing is inspired. I believe it. There is one small part that I disagree with. It's where Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. I disagree with that. I'm the chief of sinners. 
in a biblically aware communication, if you're biblically minded, you're going to realize that when I communicate, I am totally depraved. There's no part of the fall that has not touched some aspect of my life. I'm not as, I, I may not be as bad as I could be, but yet I, badness, sin has touched all parts of me. And there, in this moment, I could be communicating in a way that is not for the glory of God and the good of the person, but really for my own self-glory. Hedonism, my own pleasure. By the way, years ago, there's a guy by the name of John Piper, a pastor. He coined the phrase Christian hedonism, which that sounds really weird. I get it. Like, how can you fit that together? Hedonism and, and Christian. But he coined this phrase called Christian hedonism. And he said, instead of hedonism living for your own pleasure... Actually, be a Christian hedonist that all of life is lived for God's pleasure. And that's actually how you actually fight sin. How does a person actually get to the point where when they do communicate, they have this internal awareness that just kind of happens automatically? I would say it's because all of life is actually lived in Christian hedonism. You are not about your pleasure, but everything is about bringing pleasure to God. In fact, if you're online watching this, if you're here and you have any kind of sin in your life that seems to be controlling, any kind of sin in your life that you would classify as an addiction, which by the way, I, I, it, people would disagree with me when I say this, I don't think actually the word addiction is a really biblical way to describe enduring sin patterns. The Bible would use words like bondage and enslavement, okay? Uh, I don't think addiction actually helps you understand all the ways that God has made you. You're more than just a biological addiction creature. You're an inward and an outward. You're a hedonist and you also have physical things going on. I actually think you should use the word bondage or enslavement because what that helps you to understand is you're being enslaved to your own hedonism and the way to get out of any controlling, enslaving, bondage sin is to become a Christian hedonist. So when men are dealing with things like lust and it's empowering and driving in their lives and they're kind of like, man, I've set up every roadblock in my life, Nick. I can't get out of this. Like, what do I do? What do I do? Now, you set up all the roadblocks, but then you have to have a heart change. And one of those heart changes is you are getting back into that sin because you are desiring it. You're finding pleasure in it. You are becoming a hedonist. It's, it's about fulfilling your own pleasure. But you will actually fight against sin in your life with any slavery to sin, any controlling sin in your life, if you actually will start focusing on bringing pleasure to God, then you won't bring pleasure to yourself. And that's all of life. Even the way we communicate, that's how it works. So a person might be going like, you know, understand, I'm Irish, right? So like, we're just kind of angry people or, you know, I'm redheaded. You know, all the redheads are like, how dare you? You're like, I'm redheaded and, and, and us redheads, we... We're angry people by nature. And I would say, actually, I would say this. When we are focused on bringing pleasure to God, the way we communicate is totally different. Even if the person is angry and mean to us, not doesn't mean that we're cowering back, but it means that when we deliver back, even if we're admonishing them, it's for the glory of God and their good. It's this idea of being a, a Christian hedonist. Everything is about bringing pleasure to God. And by the way, I'll just tell you this. When all of life is about bringing pleasure to God, you'll notice yourself being hard to even offend. You ever been around those people that you're just wondering, like, man, I heard what people said to that person. How did they not get offended? More than likely, you may see, look at that person's worship in life. When a person is focused on bringing pleasure to God, you, you lose the easy capacity to make life all about yourself. 
So the first thing when we look at communicating between husband and wife, between children, it's communicate with an internal awareness that you're a sinner, that you have more hedonism going on inside of you than what you ever probably have realized. And some of these conflicts that continue to happen come as a result of your own passions. That's what James says right here. Parenthetically, if you were to look, actually, let's look over it. Look at Matthew chapter 7. I want to point out another passage of Scripture. I wish we could spend more time in James 4. We probably could because, I mean, the Cowboys are playing at noon, but they're not going to win. Fairly confident of that one now. <laughs> For those of you that are sports lovers, I actually have figured the Cowboys out this season. They're trying to lose more games so they can trade up and, and get the first round in the draft pick. So it's just, that's just the conspiracy theory on the inside. We all know it's true. All right, chapter 7, verse 1 of, of I love this passage. Judge not that you be not judged. Which, by the way, this is what every secular person knows. It's like the one verse they know. Judge not that you be not judged. Just so you understand, Christians are actually to judge. We are. We are to judge. We're not to judge hypocritically. We're not to judge each other in areas of preference. But we can judge what is real sin. If a brother or sister is violating a biblical sin, you can actually judge on that. Okay? If... A brother or sister in Christ is lying, okay? And that gets exposed. You can gently, for the glory of God and their good, speak to them about that. That is a form of judging, but that is a biblically called for form of judging. But what we're talking about in this text is not that kind of judging. What we're talking about is where you're trying to bring that kind of judgment to somebody, but you haven't judged yourself first. Verse 2 says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck, the toothpick, basically, that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So you don't see anything where it says, don't. People say, like, don't judge, don't judge. No, actually here it says, There is a form of judgment that happens. You need to help your brother with this speck. You just need to realize when you help your brother with this speck, internally, you know you have a law. Biblical communication always has this idea that I'm a sinner. I mean, even when you're talking to other brothers and sisters in the Lord about their sin, if you want to know how to do it and how to do it well, when you talk to them, you must see yourself as the chief of sinners. If you do, that's because you've become a Christian hedonist and you're living for the pleasure of God, and you're seeing the holiness of God and what you truly are. And, and when you talk to a person, it's like, for the grace of God, that could be me as well. And you'll talk humbly. Have you ever noticed that when you try to talk to somebody and you see the, only the bigness of their sin and you see yours as small, you talk with a haughtiness and a pridefulness. So when we communicate from husband to wife, from, from anybody, we do it with an internal awareness that we're a sinner. Even in the moment when we communicate, I mean, I am totally depraved. I'm not as bad as I could be at times, but depravity has touched all parts of me. So even when I'm communicating and it gets exposed to me of like, whoa, what you just said, that's unfair. Or what you just said, I don't think you have a, a, that's not exactly what I meant when I told you that. Because I'm a sinner and I know that, what can I do at that moment? Sometimes I can hold myself tentative. I can go, you know what? There may be. Let me, let me look at my heart. 
Let me, let me try to take a look at what was my motivation for doing that. Even sometimes when you're in the midst of the communication and it gets exposed to you that what you communicated seemed to come from a heart of pride or selfishness and you're not really sure how to grapple with that in the moment, you can always say, listen, I know I'm a sinner internally. I heard Nick tell me that already. And Can I do this? Can you give me about an hour? Let me go to the Word. Let me go to the Lord. And let me, make, let me take a look at that. Thank you. Thank you, wife, for exposing that to me. Let me take a look at it. Thank you, husband. You understand, this is how we communicate. We communicate with an internal awareness. We, and by the way, you might be going like, that is not the way y'all want to live life. I do not want to live life in a way that I have an internal awareness that I'm a sinner. Yeah, you do. Because when you do that, you realize how gracious his grace is. Like, we only think grace, grace is cheap if grace isn't saving you from something. What I love about growing in the Lord from the time I became a Christian at 16 to now 42, I am worse off, I think. When I look at myself in light of God's holiness, I am worse off now. I, I think I'm, I mean, I, like at 20, I started to get kind of some big red flag sins out of my life. And I started to kind of think like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, God, I'm on the fast track. Like, man, I'm a really good person and people need to listen to me. And it seems like the more I grow in the Lord and I look at his perfect standard, because most of my standards were comparing myself to someone else weaker, you know. Looking at his holy standard, I started to realize, like, wait a minute. Like, God, I, you are so holy. You so, are so unsullied by sin. And then I became so appreciative of his grace and new and growing in robust ways. What has to happen? Internally, I have to have a constant awareness that I'm a sinner. In light of his glory, that gets exposed. In light of being a Christian hedonist. It's all about God's pleasure that gets exposed. So when we communicate at a heart level, internal awareness at all times, James chapter 4. Then number two, that's point one. That only took 20 minutes. Number two, we have to communicate rightly motivated. Communicate rightly motivated with the right motivation. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. You might be thinking, well, Nick, you're 20 minutes in and you've only got point one. This is going to be a two-parter. Who knows? That's the great thing about being a sovereigntist, right? God was in control of it the whole time. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, Unto him who is ahead unto Christ. Speak the truth in love. So we have all heard that phrase. We've heard that being said. Anytime we communicate, we must communicate with the right motivation. And that motivation is actually love. Now, we won't spend too much time. But when you look at the more context of that, speak the truth in love. Contextually, he is is just laid out in Ephesians 4, 12. Uh, the equipping of the saints. God gives prophets and evangelists and apostles and shepherds and teachers to equip the body for the work of ministry so that, uh, that the body of Christ can become mature, so there can be unity in Christ because all of Ephesians is talking about Jesus is the head of everything. That's why we have the 
order of the family happening in chapter four through in chapter five through six, the ordering of the family and children and and life. Everything is under the headship of Christ. So he says, I've given you all these pastors, evangelists, prophets, teachers, and they're there to help equip you for the work of ministry. Also so that that Christ can be the head of everything, that people can be matured. When people are matured in Christ, there's unity in the body of Christ. And he says if people are matured in verse 14 of Ephesians 4, they don't fall into false doctrine and every wind of error that happens. They don't fall for the deceitful schemes of the world. And now, when you speak the truth, you can speak the truth, but you do it in love. When you're doing love, you're, you're building up the body of Christ. They're becoming one. They're becoming unified because Jesus is the head. You're helping them to be, reach fullness and maturity. So that's all the kind of background context of this. But I just want you to notice this word, in love. Speak the truth in love. In love. So the motivation for us speaking is love. It's loving the person. Now that word love is the word agape. There's many different Greek words for love. There is phileo which is a Greek word that's used sometimes, and it's a kind of brotherly love. It describes a city, phileo. Does that remind you of any city? It's a, it, there's a football team that's there that's almost as bad as the Cowboys. Can you all tell them a little bit about the Cowboys, right? Can you, can you see my heart? It's uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, phileo. comes from the Greek word phileo. Sometimes love is a brotherly love towards somebody. Nothing wrong with that. There is eros love, that's like an erotic love, sexual love. But the Greek, the Greek language had such a robust word usage for love. But it has another word to describe love, and it's called agape love. It's this unconditional love. It's this love where, for the glory of God in your good, that's how I'm loving you. This agape love is the same type of love that Jesus has for us. The work of the cross, the gospel message, is all agape love. It's this unconditional commitment. The love that a husband and wife have for each other is supposed to be agape love. The love that parents have for children is agape love. As children develop and grow into maturity, the love they have for their parents is agape love. The love that church people have for each other is agape love, right? And in this text, he says, this is the way we communicate. We speak the truth. And we're going to look at that idea of truth in a little bit, another point. But he says, you've got to do it in love. Now, it's interesting. When you look in, um, a lot of you have like these uh, apps that you can look up Greek words. And you ever notice when you look up Greek words for something, you may see many different de- definitions. And those many different definitions are usually coming from a, 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 like a Greek lexicon, a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a biblical languages dictionary. What's interesting is that word love uh, has many different shades of meaning from like commitment to unconditional. But one lexicon word for love is a meal, a table fellowship meal, which I find very interesting. When the early church took communion, they always took it with a meal. That was kind of part of it. Um, if I have to give you kind of a secret desire of mine, I wish that someday that, that our church, it would be normal that every Sunday we'd like come together and like have a meal and take communion. And like we didn't rush out of here like we're in some movie theater, okay? Like I've got, I've got an amen over here or, or a hallelujah corner, all right? But it's interesting. Speak the truth in love. A lot of times people see that and go, got it, got it, got it. I'm going to be truthful with this person, which is good, and I'm going to do it in love. 
And they're, they're looking at their motivations. Okay, do I love God? Do I love this person? Is this, as I speak to them, is it going to be for the glory of God and the good of this person? Okay, I got it. And they'll kind of rush into the situation. Okay, Nick's going to start preaching in two minutes. So let me go ahead and pull this off. Speak the truth in love. Sister, I've been thinking and praying about you today. You said something the other day. I don't think that was proper. I think you need to repent of it. Okay, we got to get in. Okay, I spoke the truth in love, Lord. But actually, when you look at that word love, that agape love, and even in the the dictionary lexicon, one of the meanings is table fellowship, a table meal. What happens when you have a table meal? You slow down, don't you? You don't rush. You have, you have time to kind of fellowship. You know, when you eat, you don't typically eat rushed. Well, unless you're in the car, you know, slamming down something, you know, that's poisoning your system from like McDonald's. I'm sorry, yes, it's poison. <laughs> but we still eat it, don't we? Um, but what happens when we have table fellowship is typically we slow down, we have conversation, there's, you know, the food kind of breaks up the, the, the awkwardness of the moment. And you're wondering to yourself, how do I speak the truth in love? How do I speak the truth in love to my kid? How do I speak the truth in love to my spouse? Well, you know what? Sit down to a meal with no rushing, with no I've got to be somewhere else. Sit down, look at each other, take your time, and love each other. Agape, table fellowship. Now, don't think that I'm saying to you, well, Nick... Are you telling me I'm not really loving some person unless I sit down and have a meal with them? No, but I will tell you this. You have something really difficult to talk about, like try to do it over table fellowship. And let me also put this in there. And this is an indictment to all of us and a conviction for my soul. Families that don't eat meals together can a lot of times have bad communication problems. Actually, the table is one place where a family can call themselves back together that, that sometimes if things have happened that day, that they can have a chance to kind of repent and communicate with each other. We've almost forgotten that. We've tried to eat in front of the TV. And now, listen, I'm not saying that that's wrong. You may have Friday night pizza night where we, where we, you know, where we watch that and we watch a movie. That's, I'm, I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. But I wonder, how many of our mealtimes, do we have any kind of rhythm where in some ways we have some times where we're, it doesn't have to be strictly every day, but do we check in with each other at a table where we can agape, we can table fellowship with each other? I would even throw this out to you. How do you speak the truth in love? When you take communion with your church body, when you take it, you're, you're looking at your relationship with God, and when you take communion, you're actually also looking at your relationship with the body. If, if you ever wanted to kind of, how do we practice speaking the truth in love or like sometimes take communion with people. Like if you're going to have a difficult time, a difficult conversation with somebody and, and you're kind of like, okay, speak the truth in love, agape, unconditional love, loving them like Christ loves me. Like I want to keep this central. You know what you can do? Have a meal with somebody and then say, listen, brother, I have something difficult to talk to you about. And here's what we're going to do. I want to have a meal and then we're going to take communion afterwards, which means we'll only take communion afterwards if we're reconciled, if we had a, you know, that we've met, had a chance to repent and we've had a chance to reconcile this because you can't take communion worthily if you haven't reconciled with that person. So you might table fellowship. It is a part of it. Like you might, I mean, your family, if you're experiencing a lot of friction in your family and you're wondering like, what can we do? You know what you could probably do? Start having more meals together and start taking communion afterwards. And if you can't 
be reconciled at the end of it to take communion, then let that be a convicting thing that you have to say to each other. Lord, help us that we would repent. So tomorrow when we take this meal, we could take communion. So we don't want to take it unworthily. Are you catching my drift here? Are you catching this idea? So when we communicate, we communicate with an internal awareness that we're a sinner. James chapter 4, 1 through 3. Then we communicate rightly motivated, in love. By the way, when you look at all of Scripture, it's basically about loving God and loving others. The Ten Commandments, what are they basically about? The first four are loving, are loving God. The last five are loving others. The fifth, the Sabbath, is kind of a mixture between the two. Really, loving others and loving God together. What is it all about? When they came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love God and what? Love others, right? That's the greatest commandment. Okay, how y'all doing? We got, point, we got two of these points down. I got nine minutes left. How y'all doing? Y'all okay? Y'all live? Y'all kicking? Number three. Number three, communicate wisely. Communicate wisely. James chapter 1. Oh, man. If you don't hear anything I say today, and you're kind of like, Nick, man, my heart's so off from Jesus. I don't even know how to do this. Like, I feel like I'm Peter. I've, I've got a peppermint sock on my foot, and I'm always sticking my foot in my mouth. Like, man, I just don't even know. Okay, James 1.19, this is going to help you. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I would say point number three is communicate wisely. What does communicate wisely? What do I mean by that? What I mean is listen first before you speak. Notice James 1.19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, look at me. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is what usually happens in a lot of our communication. And what do we do? Quick to anger, right? Quick to open up our mouth. And we may listen after we've done Sherman's March on Georgia, okay? After we've already exploded everything. I have never, ever, 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 ever had to repent for listening too much. Never happened. I have had to repent for saying too much. And boy, I mean, especially when you have the gift of preaching and teaching, you really open your mouth up a whole lot and really fast. But here's the thing about great communication. Everybody always thinks great communication is knowing how to talk. And there's an, there's an aspect that says be swift to hear, slow to speak. But the greatest communicators are great listeners, are great listeners. Listening well, that's, that's communicating wisely is first listening well. Do you listen well? Now, sometimes people say, yeah, I listen. But your listening is just so you can reply back and just give, express your thoughts. But I'm talking about listening to a point of you're more concerned about what they have to say than you have to say first. And here's what typically happens. This is why we don't really, this, this, this doesn't happen. We don't communicate wisely. You're driving along, once again, it's a great day, it's a fall day, the birds are chirping, you're enjoying the weather, the windows are rolled down, you don't need heat or AC, it's just a great day. Then all of a sudden something happens, everything goes sideways. And then you and that other person, you and your spouse, you and your kid, you start this ping pong match of they say something and all you're waiting for them to do is to take a breath so that you can express 
And then when you're talking, they're just waiting for you to take a breath so they can express. And then what you're doing is this really long kind of kind of uh, basically Olympic-style ping-pong ball championship tournament, right? Where you're just ping-ponging back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. What happens there? Quick to wrath, quick to speak, slow to listen. You're not even listening when you're doing that. You're, you're just waiting for them to take a breath so that you can maybe give them some kind of counter-argument because that that, that, you just think what's going to happen is I'm, gonna, I'm about to tell them how it really is and they're going to look at me and go, you are so right. And does that happen? No, just ping pong back and forth. I mean, but that's what we think. But communication, it's wise, is I want to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, that doesn't mean you don't speak. That just means if you're going to speak, you, you, you want to know how to speak. You want to be informed how to speak. And I will say this. If you listen well, that's going to give you time to look at your own heart, look at your own internal awareness, look at your own motivations, look at, am I speaking in love here about what I'm about to say? And you're taking that in when you listen well. Listen. It, you, you don't have to repent for it. It's free. It's a great, and if you're wondering, like, how, how can I practice this? What if, what if the person doesn't want to communicate with me? Then ask them questions to get more communication. By the way, I will tell you this. If your spouse has something to say, it's worth listening to. Even if you're not interested in it, in fact, that would show that... Have you ever been in those situations where... And this is the most indicting thing to a guy like me. I'll do all this kind of discipleship and counseling with people. I'll listen to people. I'll spend an hour, spend an hour or two with people. And then you... Or you might be at work. You're, you're in meetings all day. You're with people. You're listening to them. And then you come home. And someone wants to have a conversation with you. And it lasts more than five minutes. And you're just kind of like walking to the other room as they're trying to communicate, right? You understand that, that, that if someone in our family has something to say, it's worth listening to. It's not a sin to listen. Parents, it's not even a sin to listen to your kids. I'm not saying obey your kids. But I am saying that you need to listen to them. We're not listening for obedience, but listening for their heart. As I've showed you a couple weeks ago, the, the younger a kid is, you appeal more to the discipline side, the structure, the outward behavior. And, and then, but you also do instruction, but the older they get, you appeal more to the instruction side as they mature through the years. Well, how are you going to instruct well if you don't know what's going on in their heart? Like as your kid is getting into their teen years, especially, and they're growing and maturing, you want to have conversations. You want to encourage that. And it's not going to be convenient at all. It never is. But you want to you want to find out what are they thinking? What's their worldview? What's just happened? You want to know this. You want to be swift to hear. Sometimes as parents, we're not swift to hear with our kids, especially when they get into the teenage years where, that, we, that we're just more focused on, I just want to communicate what you need to correct, which, don't get me wrong, the text says, be swift to hear, slow to speak. So it's not saying don't speak. But I'm saying if you want to kind of find out more What's going on at the heart? You've got you to gotta give them an opportunity to talk. And sometimes as a parent, you might have to actually put yourself in that opportunity. It, sometimes it might be intentional times. Uh, usually the, the way to the heart of any teenage boy is usually through his stomach. I mean, so it's really easy. Just take him somewhere, something to eat. And if you want to have some time with him, just sit down. Um, that, can, that can be with a daughter as well. I, I know that you know, any young ladies are like, hey, I like to eat. But 
Um, it's time to communicate, even just a time to go like shopping together. That's a time to communicate. Parents, sometimes we have to actually pattern for it. Sometimes parents, to even be able to have that opportunity to listen, we may have to do some hard things like if your kid's, your kid's 16 and they've been gone six nights out of the week and you've had no time with them, you might have to say, I love you, but for the glory of God, I just need some time with you. God's not done with me doing this parenting part yet. I need some instruction time and like I, I need to find out where, where you're at, what's going on in your heart. I just need to spend some time with you. Communicate wisely. Listen first. Listen well. Go back over to Ephesians chapter 4. Y'all doing okay? I didn't hear anything, but that no news is good news. Man, I'm trying to joke around with you guys, but I don't hear any laughs today, but that's okay. Maybe that's just my own pride. All right. I've got... Hmm. I'm looking at my notes here, guys. By the way, you know what's awesome? What I'm telling you, I almost tell people on a daily basis. Almost the bulk of when I get to communication stuff with people in remedial discipleship counseling is some of the very things I'm telling you right here. Look at Ephesians 4.25. Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having... By the way, what we get when we're looking kind of contextually at Ephesians 4 here, we've just seen uh, before verse 25, this idea of you're now in Christ, put off the old man, put on the new man, put off the sinful habits and patterns, replace it with the new desires and righteous desires and patterns of life. God changes people when they come to Christ. You don't, when you come to Christ, you just don't get a ticket out of hell into heaven. You get a ticket out of hell into heaven, but you actually get God right now. And he starts to change your life. You start to live not for your own hedonism, but for Christian hedonism, for the pleasure of God. Now look at verse 25. He kind of gives it, he kind of puts it down on street level and says, therefore... Put away falsehood, put away lying, non-truths, and everyone speak truth with one another. By the way, how does a person biblically change? You get a great pattern in chapter 4 where when you, biblical change is you put off the unrighteous and you put on the righteous. You put off the unrighteous thoughts, you put on the righteous thoughts. You put off the unrighteous action, you put on the righteous action. Verse 25, he says, therefore put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. This is point number four, is communicate truthfully. Communicate truthfully. In Ephesians 4.15, we have to speak the truth in love, so it has to be truthful. And the way we communicate in the body of Christ, in our families, is truthfully. And let me just give you a couple insights into that. By the way, a great book uh, that I got this quote from, it's called Marry Wisely, Marry Well. If you're hoping to be married someday, I would recommend, heartily recommend this book, Marry Wisely, Marry Well. Uh, by Dr. Baker. He was one of my professors. A really great book in preparing you for if you're hoping to be married someday. Marry wisely, marry well. Here's what he had to say. The key to honest communication is accurate communication. Think about this. Exaggeration is in the same category as lying. Did that get your attention? It is easy in the heat of an argument to say, you always or you never. Is that actually true? They never These kind of statements only intensify arguments and break down communication. So point number four is communicate truthfully. 
It says right here in the text, therefore put away falsehood, which exaggeration is falsehood. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. And sometimes I think our, I think I know, I hear this exaggeration. Have you ever, between you and your kids and you and your spouse, used the words, you never? You know, this exaggeration. Those are, that's lying. That's false. That's not really true. You never, really? You never listen to me. Well, not once in the whole 12 years I've been your child, I've never listened to you, right? I mean, you know, you've, you've, you never, okay, in the 10 years that you've been married, you've never served her? You never. These are untruthful ways we communicate. We must communicate truthfully. Also, um, one of the ways we don't communicate truthfully is, and, and here's another quote from him I thought was great. Another common violation of this verse, Ephesians 4.25, Dr. Baker says, is to answer nothing when asked. Ever happened? What's wrong? Nothing. Y'all don't know nothing about that, do y'all? Y'all know nothing about that. Online, y'all go ahead and turn this thing off. You don't even know what that's about. What's wrong? Nothing. To be truthful, in it, you should be truthful in answering, Dr. Baker says. Usually husbands and wives are guilty of this because they do not want to talk about the issues. It would be better to tell the truth. Yes, there is something wrong. But perhaps ask for a time to think about how to have a proper conversation. How could you start working on accurate, truthful conversation even right now? Then it happens so much. What's wrong? Nothing. Then what happens is you stew over it, you stew over it, you stew over it, you stew over it. You start doing stupid things like, well, why didn't you come to bed last night? Oh, I just got tired and I just, you know, went ahead and slept in the other room. I didn't want to bother you, right? You're just mad, you know, sleeping in a separate room, separate bed, doing all sorts of stupid stuff. Communicate truthfully. Now, if you're not ready to communicate truthfully in the moment, you can always say, I need to refer back to point number one. I need to work on my internal awareness of my own sin. I need some time before we talk about this, but can we come back to this conversation? You got to communicate truthfully. Number five, communicate currently. Communicate currently. Currently. Look in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Did you know that there is a type of righteous anger? But you, there is a righteous anger. Righteous anger is where you're angry about something done to God or somebody else and you have a righteous response. Rarely is that our anger. Unrighteous anger starts with this idea of you're angry about something done to yourself. So that's why it says be angry and do not sin. You can have a righteous type of angry, but don't let that become a sinful anger where it's about you. Now, he says in verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let the sun go down. Give no opportunity, verse 27, to the devil. Now, what I tell people is, do not let the sun go down on your anger, which is, is really telling us the principle is, like, communicate currently. Don't let things go and stew and stew and stew and stew forever. Now, some people have taken this and said, that's why we do not, we made a pact when we got married that we will not go to bed angry. I think that's a fine pact. But I will tell you this, if it's 10 o'clock at night and you usually go to bed at 9 and something happens, it's not sinful to go to bed if you can go ahead and, you know, make a time and go, I am tired and I don't think I'm going to be able to fight my depravity well. And so can we get up early tomorrow at 6 o'clock, have coffee, and can we have a thoughtful conversation? You're not going to bed angry at that moment because you've set a time to bring resolution to it. But if you want to have the deal of we, we resolve it before Man, you go at it. 
that will probably only work in your younger days. When you get older, you get tired, okay? It's true. We all know it. Even I know it. That's why, that's why at like 8 o'clock at night, you're like, man, I, I, I just want to go to bed, all right? I mean, I, I never used to think about that. At 8 o'clock, I was just catching my wind for the day a couple years ago. But that's why they made coffee. Now, here's the thing. When we... Oh, I love what Dr. Baker had said about this verse. He said this, Rather than allowing relationships to deteriorate when something is wrong, God's word admonishes us to go to the other person as soon as possible. By the way, verse 27, it says, Give no opportunity to the devil. When are we giving Satan an opportunity? When we do not communicate currently. When we put it off and put it off and stew and stew and get bitter instead of getting better and we don't resolve the conflict, and we let the conflict keep going. Communicate currently. Number six, communicate to build up. 429, communicate to build up. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Communicate to build up. That word corrupting talk has the idea of like harmful, rotten kind of communication. You're just communicating to tear them down. That word build up is the oiko dome. That oiko means house, dome is building. It means that the way you communicate is you're trying to build that person up. In fact, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And in the, before we take communion, we're going to give a chance for you to edify and build up the body. It's something in our, the way we communicate. We are to build up each other. It was interesting. When we build The way we communicate sometimes, we're not looking to build up. We're actually looking to tear down. How do we know that? Because let's say you've got 10 statements this week to say to your spouse or 10 statements to say to your kids. If we are focused more on corrupt communication than building up communication, then nine of those things we say will probably be critical. And maybe one will be a positive thing. Like, One of the things that you do when you build up, that means that you're looking for ways to bring thanksgiving and praise. You're looking for ways to give generous appreciation. Now, does that mean that you never speak any kind of admonishing words? Absolutely not. You must speak truthfully. Truthful. If something's going on, you've got to speak about it. But I will tell you this. I think there's, because if you have an internal awareness of your sin, you can realize that you have a, we all have a proclivity to focus on the negative and pick out nine things that everybody's doing wrong before we focus on, like, the things that God is doing. And by the way, when you do that, you've now set a person up that when you do have things to say, that, that, and it's a critical or it's an admonishing thing, it's easier to take in those moments. We have to communicate to build up. And lastly, aha, we made it. Number seven. Are y'all awake? Y'all still okay? Number seven. It's that we are to communicate kindness, forgiveness, and do it with tenderheartedness. Look at the last thing. Communicate with kindness, forgiveness, and tenderheartedness. Look at Ephesians 4. We'll finish this. Verse 31. My, my computer's starting to run out of energy. But we can just close that, baby. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, I do this one all the time. Ephesians 4.31. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put off, verse 31, 
put on verse 32 when we communicate. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving, as God in Christ forgave you. We must communicate kindness, forgiveness, and do it with tenderheartedness. You know, by the way, you want to know, remember I told you earlier, righteous anger is your anger about something done to God or somebody else, and you have a righteous response. For instance, abortion angers me. It, it is something against the Lord and against others, so that's a good anger, and that should move me to want to pray, to support pro-life kind of things, right? Give money to Planned Parenthood. Um, I'm, sorry, Planned Parenthood. I'm sorry, crisis. <laughs> You're like, whoa, no, don't do that. To the pregnancy, a pregnancy resource center, pregnancy resource center that's right across the street from Planned Parenthood here. That would be righteous anger with a righteous response. Sinful anger is your anger about something done to you, and you have an unrighteous response. Now, you might be wondering, how would I ever know that? Well, first is this. When you start to get angry, the first question I ask myself is, am I angry about something done to God or somebody else or me? Of course, 99% of the time, who do you think I'm pointing the finger at? Myself. Now, what's interesting Here's another look. Look at verse 31. How do you know you're actually walking in sinful anger at the moment? Verse 31 will happen. Bitterness. That means when you basically despise the other person. You don't even want to be around them. To even see them is an antagonistic thing to your soul. Then wrath. Wrath is where you blow up on the person. Anger here, this word anger, orge, is this idea of like a seething kind of anger. Wrath is exploding. This word anger here is this idea of this icy cold. You know, sometimes when people are angry, they explode on people. Then sometimes when people are angry, you know what they do? They ignore them. They silence them. They act like they don't even exist. They give them the silent treatment. Clamor. Clamor is when you start yelling at people. You start to kind of overpower them. You get abusive with your language. You get very viscerally kind of forceful, kind of hoping that that will make them agree with you. Be put away from you with all slander. That word slander is the Greek word that we get blasphemy from. You start to slander and accuse them and throw every kind of word out to cut them down with all malice. That is the manifestations of sinful anger in your communication. Now, look at verse 32. Here's what God wants us to do. Be kind one to another. Kind. Kind. Then it says, be forgiving. And do it with tenderheartedness. Tenderheartedness is this idea of you're trying to understand where they're coming from. And this word forgiveness is you're no longer replaying the matter to yourself. Forgiveness. You've taken them off your hook. You put them on God's hook. Forgiveness. And what it means is you are communicating to them with kindness and forgiveness. Not because they deserve it. But what does it say in verse 32? What does it say in verse 32? One another as what? As what? God in Christ forgave you. Worship team, make your way up here. So, here's the deal. It all hinges, all of our communication in the end, it really hinges on the gospel, doesn't it? The way we communicate with forgiveness, that's all hinged on the forgiveness that you've received from God. It really is. Why is a person bitter in anger? Because maybe you haven't forgiven them as God has forgiven you. Maybe you're not forgiving them because you think they've got to earn your forgiveness when the gospel says you've been forgiven because of the finished work of Christ, not because of of you, but because of what he's done. 
Well, what a great opportunity for us to roll into a time of singing and taking communion and edifying each other. Forgiveness. When we take communion, we're reminding ourselves that we are forgiven by God. And if you read the context of the early church taking communion in 1 Corinthians 11, part of them taking it worthily was they looked at the relationship with God and they looked at the relationship with each other. Was it reconciled? Was there forgiveness? Forgiveness.